1: Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown podcast. I am pleased to have Ben Bulch on, who is the Clippers beat writer for the L.A. Times. Ben, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, I hope that you are ready to talk a little bit about the Clippers.
2: Absolutely. There's plenty to talk about. What what a summer, huh?
1: Well, there certainly was. And before we get to the really exciting stuff from happening uh, last month, uh, just yesterday... Uh, Your friend and mine, Bill Simmons, went on to Twitter and had a little bit of a weird rant almost about what was going on in Clipperland that I thought was a little bit eye-opening. And uh, for those of you people who didn't see it or read it, uh, I'll quickly read what he wrote. Um, One of the, the first one said, quote, Steve Ballmer seems like a nice enough guy. Donald Sterling was one of the worst human beings who ever owned a pro sports franchise. Two, with that said... Since last summer, the Ballmer Clips have been just as much of a disaster behind the scenes as the Sterling Clips were. And the third one was Ballmer has shown zero evidence that he knows what he's doing, and it's been the best-kept secret in the NBA for 15 to 16 months. Uh, the Clips organization has been as dysfunctional as ever, not just the team, but especially off the court. It's a laundry list of things. <sighs> And I'm going to be interested to see which reporter jeopardizes their long-term access connections to write the story, because it's coming. Ben, are you going to be that <laughs> that reporter?
2: Well, that's a good question. And, um, you know, certainly I, I think I've seen a, a few indications of what he's talking about. Um, but I, I think in all fairness, it, it's probably uh, – to be fair to Steve Ballmer, we need to let it play out a little bit longer. I mean, there there is some some inside stuff going on that's, that's a little bit questionable. I mean, yesterday we saw the thing with the NBA fining uh, the Clippers a quarter million dollars uh, for making that the pitch to to DeAndre Jordan about getting a sponsorship deal with Lexus as part of their efforts to get him to stay to be a Clipper, um, which was something that the NBA said was not cool and, and obviously find them a big chunk of change, and, and and I think that's just kind of one of the, the scratching the surface things that Bill Simmons is talking about here, um, and there there's a couple other things I, I won't get into that that I'm aware of that I think he's alluding to there, uh, but like I said, you know, it's still early in Steve Ballmer's senior. Um, you know, I think he wants to do well. I think he has good intentions And, uh, you know, let's see, maybe he'll acknowledge some mistakes, make some changes and and get this thing you know headed in a better direction. But I will say, let's look at the roster. And and that's the product that people care the most about. And I think that they did some great things this summer. And Doc Rivers certainly uh, deserves a lot of credit for that.
1: Well, before we get to that, um, how did the NBA even find out that they uh, pitched him this Lexus deal?
2: Yeah, you know, um, I don't know the particulars of that. I, I just know that, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of a big deal and it kind of isn't. I mean, it's one of those things where I think that the, um, the, the you know, they were doing everything they could to keep him. He's obviously, um, you know, DeAndre Jordan is kind of a, a distant third in the, in the pecking order as far as sponsorships. Uh, with the Clippers. Chris Paul is, is a well-known pitchman. Blake Griffin, you know, does the Kia ads and, and other things. And and keeping DeAndre Jordan happy and giving him these kinds of things, like this Lexus thing, was one of the things that the Clippers uh, wanted to do uh, because, you know, he had made it known that, that he wanted these types of things. So um, I don't think there was anything evil or, you know, any any real bad intentions there. It was just the way it was done was, was not – uh, within the NBA guidelines, and, and they gave him, uh, you know, a pretty heavy slap on the wrist. I mean, um, a quarter million dollars uh, f- to Steve Ballmer is like, uh, you know, $25 to you or me or, or maybe even 25 cents. But I think the point the point is made that, you know, you guys have to have to get in these guidelines, and, and even though he's new at this, he, he should have known better. But I don't think there was anything sinister or evil about it. I think it, it's just, you know, kind of a, a little bit of a slip, and will learn from it.
1: For sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about DeAndre Jordan and the the leaving thing, because, um, you know, what started to leak out a little bit was his relationship with uh, Chris Paul and how that might have spurred his desire to leave. Um, Can you weigh in a little bit about what that might have been like being in the thick of it? Yeah, you know,
2: it, it, it was at times uncomfortable to watch. I mean, we we heard and, and saw some things. There was the, 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 the game against um, Portland where um, DeAndre Jordan, you know, didn't get the tip in, you know, back in time before the buzzer went off and Chris Paul was literally jumping up and down and screaming at DeAndre right in his face to, to shoot the ball. There was another incident where, you know, we were told that, um, he, he, he verbally belittled him during a game and, and called him something I can't repeat here. But, um, you know, the, the, there were times when, when Chris could be difficult and prickly and, and, and you know, that's it's, in his defense, that's kind of, you know, his leadership style and a function of who he is. And I think his, his teammates get and appreciate that in a way, even though in the moment it may be difficult and they may be mad. I think, you know, when they sit back long-term, and think about it, um, you know, he, he wants the best for the team, and he's trying to get them to excel. And I think, you know, that was kind of the big takeaway. Um, and talking to Jordan, to DeAndre Jordan at the um, Team USA minicamp recently, um, you know, I think the, the the big takeaway is that they're actually closer now as a result of this. They kind of aired it all out, uh, that, that infamous, uh, um, you know, meeting in Houston when the Clippers uh, players and, and team executives – it on his house in in the efforts to get him to stay at the last minute. Um, And, and, you know, I think they're in a better place now going forward, and and I think that's going to be a a big help for for everybody involved.
1: Well, you know, that sounds certainly like a real uh, plausible scenario where, you know, this kind of thing could really uh, maybe open up Chris Paul's eyes a little bit. Do you think that that's a – you know, obviously when you're a point guard and you need to run a team – There are ways to do that. And it sounds like, uh, you know, Chris Paul, like you mentioned, isn't always the easiest guy. It doesn't sound like Doc Rivers had any interest in helping him, you know, treat his teammates better in tough situations. But do you think that going forward, is that what it sounds like Chris Paul might actually lay off a little bit? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I actually
2: asked him this pointedly. I said, well, you know, you, you took a beating in the media over over what happened with, with all the details of, you know, the the things like the jumping up and down his face and saying, you know, mean things. And there were other things that were reported. Um, and, and he said, you know, I'm comfortable with who I am. Um, he doesn't feel like he needs to change. He feels like, you know, he's going to be who he is. He's been in the NBA 10 years. So he's been, a you know, an eight-time All-Star. Um, I think he's he's comfortable with, with his leadership style and that, you know, I think that he thinks that that, that his teammates are on board and, um, you know, understand where he's coming from. So I really wouldn't look for Chris Paul to change, interestingly, interestingly <laughs> enough.
1: Okay, you know, because obviously I come at this from a different uh, perspective, from a coaching perspective in a way that I'm sure we've all played with players like that who have been very talented and uh, and, and control the team but also are kind of um, – I mean I is the word bastard uh, too strong when you play with a guy like that he was always on you and it tends to be a lot more negative than positive
2: Uh yeah it's a fine line between you know prodding and and encouraging right I mean you want somebody to to you know tell you when you're screwing up or can do better yet you know you don't want them to alienate you to the point where you know the, you you don't want to even see them or deal with them and and I think Chris Paul, for the most part, is, is able to walk that line and, and kind of, um, you know, be the guy who can be supportive when he needs to be and, and be in your face um, at the right time. And although, like I said, you know, there, there are times when it can be difficult to hear and experience, I, I feel like the, the, the Clippers um, are, are overall in a, in a pretty good spot with, with his leadership style. And that, um, you know, I think it'll be a a positive going forward, especially among the big three of Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan. I think their bond has been cemented uh, as a result of this summer and everything that happened. And that's that's huge for them going forward because they really need to have that trust among those three core guys um, to go to the next level.
1: You know, it's funny, we here over at B-Ball Breakdown have been extolling Chris Paul's virtues for years since we started as the gold standard of what a point guard should be, the way he controls the game and makes decisions, passing, timing, all those things have been impeccable. However, I don't know if it was whatever happened last year, but maybe I was in a fog and never really noticed. There has been criticism of Chris Paul in the past uh, about stuff that I always felt was unwarranted However, when I started to really take a step back and look at some of the things, it does seem like his, um, his hot-headedness is not the, the, the best word to, uh, to use, but seems to get him in trouble where, you know, there's been a couple of serious meltdowns in the playoffs that we've seen. Um, and I wonder if that sort of the, also bleeds over into the way he treats his, his uh, teammates. You know, DeAndre Jordan's free throws, I think, were also a point of contention between him and Chris Paul. We we know that Andre Jordan is certainly working as hard as he can, you know, to, to improve. And it seems like free throws are a mental thing. Um, I was kind of curious. What are your thoughts on that, and how he rates, and if that does get in the way of uh, of his treating his teammates and the way he might let in his uh, his emotions get a hold of him too much?
2: Yeah, you know, I think you know Chris Paul. The bottom line is he has a high standard of of expectations and excellence, and you know when he sees. One of his teammates making four out of every ten free throws—it it, just—it kind of, you know, drives him a little bit crazy. And, and I think that he says all the right things, and, and you know, DeAndre's role as defensive captain, and um, you know, he, he more than compensates for you know his inability to be a good free throw shooter with with what he does otherwise. And that's all true. But I, I do feel like um, there is a part of Chris Paul that that you know wants to see. Some, some sort of improvement or heading in the right direction from DeAndre Jordan. And uh, I mean, frankly, we're, we're not really seeing that. We haven't seen any uh, real improvement there. You know, it was funny. I saw him at team USA minicamp standing at the free throw line with uh, after practice shooting free throws with uh, Dwight Howard and uh, Andre Drummond. And it was not in a, a pleasant uh, viewing experience to see all those uh, shots go up and, and off. But uh you know, I, I think it's something that, that they're going to come to an understanding to it. and And like I've said, you know, their, their bond, I think, is stronger going forward. And uh, I think that's a big plus for, for the team.
1: Good. Well, let's talk a little bit. I'm kind of curious if there were, you know, you were sort of, I'm sure, closer than a lot of people as far as what was happening with DeAndre Jordan and his decision. Don't forget, sports fans, uh, you know, you can listen. There's got to be some details or some little tidbits that you heard website, about that maybe haven't been as widely Stitcher. reported about. So what you have happened. link on the screen or below in the description. Well, I think that it was I laid know, out I'm pretty clearly.
2: You know, JJ Reddit did a did a, a podcast with uh, Zach Lowe that was phenomenal and pretty much. Almost a blow-by-blow blow on, on what happened. I mean, there were some little things that uh, that I've heard that haven't been widely reported. Like Chris Paul's wife was there. Um, you know, there were there were some some comings and goings that, that weren't you know widely reported. And you know, Blake Griffin didn't really put the the, the, the chair against the door. It was just a picture taken off of the internet. Um, you know, things like that. But uh, you know, it was just a just a wild and crazy uh day i think it'll go down as one of the most memorable days in nba free agent history you know the the whole emoji battle between uh chandler parsons and then the, the clippers uh responding in kind and one of the things uh, that's still a mystery to me uh chris paul I, I i said you know how did you the banana boat was kind of the one that sent everybody over the edge because he was in the bahamas right with with uh, you know Dwayne wade and lebron and Uh, people were even saying, you know, uh, Chandler Parsons did the plane, uh, JJ Reddick did the car emoji. And then people were like, you know, if Chris Paul does a banana boat emoji, it's over. You know, Twitter's going to shut down. And then lo and behold, a few minutes later, here comes a banana boat emoji. And I asked him about it. And he said, uh, he said, JJ Reddick commandeered his phone. And I was like, oh, so it was JJ. And he said, you know, I don't even remember that that day was so crazy. So. Um, that's a little bit of, I don't know if he was just being coy or what, but, uh, you know, that's still one of the, the mysteries. And, and he said that, uh, you know, maybe there'll be a 30 for 30 on this someday. And I, I think that's absolutely a great idea. You know, this needs to be, you know, somebody needs to go do like a real blowout documentary on this because it was one of the most interesting days, uh, not just in free agency history, but, but in the NBA, because, you know, it, it really changed the course of, of two franchises and, really sent the NBA into into a tizzy over over this over the whole situation
1: yeah I mean I I still think that obviously coming to the the Clippers were the best choice for winning it felt like even if he went to Dallas it seemed like that team wasn't as good as if he had stayed Uh, so I understand why he went back at least if that was the case My, my only problem I think I had with it was that his agent sounded like he was barricaded or forbidden or not part of you know that whole thing and if the agent wanted to be there, and they were sort of, you know, blocking him from being there, that—that's the one thing that sounded a little bit weird or, or, or troubling to me. What are your take? What's your take on that?
2: Yeah, it was definitely a little bit unusual. Um, you know, usually the agents are are, are, are front and center in everything that's going on, and I feel like as the process went along, uh, DeAndre Jordan's agents were kind of pushed further and further away from, from the center of what's been all sorts of speculation about them steering him to Dallas and Mark Cuban. Um, You know, I'm not sure that's the case, but certainly I think that things did become uncomfortable uh, as it went along and then they were less involved. And, uh, you know, my understanding is Dan Fagan was not there when, when he finally did sign um, and that, you know, it was more of a secondary agent that, that actually signed the paperwork. Uh, later, and, and 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 you know that was one thing I meant to ask and follow up with with DeAndre about at Team USA minicamp was his agent situation because frankly I was kind of expecting a change and I'm not sure that that's happened yet but uh, certainly an awkward situation for all involved and it'll be interesting to see uh, how it plays out.
1: Yeah, I mean I would almost expect the agent uh, Fagan to say, you know what, I'm not going to represent you anymore because of that. It seems like that trust might be broken as it is. Uh, yeah, and you. I think you were alluding to the fact that he also represents uh, Dwight Howard, and it was almost like, well, we didn't get him over to Dallas, so we'll get DeAndre for you or something like that, right?
2: Yeah, you know, I think Mark Cuban's made the point that, you know, there's all this talk about his friendship with Dan Fagan and and him steering these guys, yet, you know, he hasn't gotten the the the, the big fish um, that, uh, that Dan Fagan represents. So, you know, how much truth is there to to that, you know, kind of steering guys, uh, you know, places that maybe they don't want to go or fully don't want to go and and that uh, Fagan and Cuban are colluding to do this or something. So, um, you know, like I said, it'll be interesting to see whether uh, this has any long-term implications on either side. Uh, As you mentioned, Fagan could say, I can't represent anymore, and, and DeAndre could say, you know, look, in the wake of this, um, I really need to go in another direction and have somebody else uh, represent me going
1: forward. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, let's talk about another newcomer to the Clippers in Lance Stevenson, who uh, has kind of left a trail of destruction in his wake, if you will, from the, uh, from Indiana to, um, to Charlotte and now to the late, uh, to the Clippers. So, um, you know, what's the party line on how he's going to fit in? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. He was kind
2: of the first big splash of, of free agent, or it wasn't even free agency, it was before free agency. The, the first big roster uh, move that Doc made this, this uh, offseason was the trade uh, Spencer Halls, who clearly was not a good fit with the Clippers, and, and Matt Barnes, who was a good fit, but, uh, you know, was getting up there in years and and, and maybe, you know, that they were, you know, banking on getting Paul Pierce, which ended up working out great for them. But, um, you know, they need to include him to make it work out. But I, I think they look at at, at Lance as a, a high, a high uh, reward, low risk proposition. In that, you know, if it doesn't work out, he's only guaranteed one more year, nine million, and then they can, uh, you know, decline that option for the following year. And Let's face it. You know, when he was in, in Indiana a couple of years ago, he was considered one of the rising stars uh, in the NBA. Uh, he gives them the, the the you know lockdown perimeter defender uh, that they've really not had since Doc Stevens or excuse me Doc Rivers uh, arrived. And you know, also a pretty dynamic playmaker who, if he's in the right situation, like he was in Indiana, can can be you know a really uh, dynamic force for an offense so you know there's lots of things to like I think that they think that their style is more suited to what he does the big question that everyone has is can Lance Stevenson and Jamal Crawford coexist on a second unit because they're both ball dominant players who need the ball you know to operate and be effective we saw that Kimba Walker and uh, Lance Stevenson did not work together. Um, so, you know, the Clippers are going to try to avoid a repeat of that. Um, and and it'll be interesting. I'm not saying it can't work, but I will be as interested as anyone to, to see how they, they would make that work with those two on the court together.
1: Yeah, you know, really great, great point. Great point. I suppose the other issue then as far as locker room, because, you know, the, the one thing we're, we haven't mentioned is that, you know, he got into a, 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 a kind of a silly fight in, in – um, in Indiana before he came back, and they clearly did not want him anymore. I think they had gotten tired of his antics, you know, blowing in in uh, LeBron's face and all that stuff. It was pretty pretty childish, uh, I guess. Is the idea that because the Clippers are a very veteran group with a guy like Chris Paul, they're going to be able to keep him in check? Is that the idea?
2: Yeah, I think so. You know, um, you know, Chris Paul and and Paul Pierce and and even Blake Griffin, you know, who's now become a pretty respected uh, figure around the NBA. I mean, I think those kind of guys will be great for Lance Stevenson um, to be around and really kind of take their lead and uh, and but let's let's also mention Josh Smith because he's he's another guy with kind of a questionable reputation coming into the mix. and I'm gonna be interested because not only you know do they have to. I won't say worry, but, you know, kind of keep tabs on Lance Stevenson. They've got Josh Smith now who also has a little bit of a reputation as somebody who can be unhappy and cause problems. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic to watch, uh, particularly if the Clippers don't get off to like a hot start and playing time issues become uh, a factor uh, on a team that's pretty loaded and pretty deep. Um, So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, if they're able to keep you know Lance and Josh happy and, and and keep them in the fold as far as being good teammates,
1: right? And, and and there's no question we've seen that in the past work. I mean Dennis Rodman got to the Bulls, and um, <clears throat> excuse me was able to you know blend in well enough, even though you know remember he was with the Spurs in a winning environment as well, and and really didn't do that well uh, in that situation. So. I suppose it comes down to, to style of maybe how Doc Rivers is going to manage this. Because remember, Josh Smith, like you mentioned, he got cut, I think, primarily because of how bad he was in the locker room. And uh, that said, Detroit wasn't winning. So I, I, I see there is a there is a path there, but honestly, I don't think – I'm not so sure it's going to work that well. But By the way, the one way I do see Lance and, and Jamal Crawford fitting in is that simply Jamal Crawford will fade into the background and not get shots because he seems to me he's that kind of guy who will sort of disengage if the ball isn't kind of getting into his hands. So now the question is, well, do you want Lance shooting more of those shots in those situations or Jamal Crawford? It's a real interesting conundrum. I'm not so sure how (laughs) Doc Rivers is going to figure that out. Um, But speaking of the coaching Doc Rivers and Spencer Hawes in that trade, I'm kind of curious. No one really talked about it too much, but it never made sense to me why Spencer Hawes did not do nearly as well as he had done earlier in his career. Didn't even look like a, an NBA player at times. And I'm wondering what, what was that about? Yeah. Uh,
2: it's a big mystery. Um, you know, doc, doc mentioned something. Um, you know, I can't remember if it was right after the season or, or, or my, actually I think it was right after the trade that, but Spencer didn't come into camp in the in the best shape, and he thought that that hurt him early in the season. Now he did get injured as well; I think missed a, a ten days or so. And I think it was kind of a situation where you got you got a, a slow start for a guy in a new situation, and then I, I mean, to me, it looked like it became mental where his confidence was totally shaken. And by probably you know early January, you know he was probably pretty much done for the season with with a, a handful of exceptions of, of having you know a couple of decent games. Uh, but as far as being that kind of reliable floor space and big man that they thought they were getting, it didn't work out, and it was it was odd. You know I I don't think he was a good fit, even if he was in a little bit better shape. I don't think you know he was strong enough defensively to hold his own, and you know his shot was clearly. Uh, off, you know, pretty much all season long. So um, it's just one of those things where, you know, you 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 put it on paper and say, hey, this guy, you know, would, would Ant solve a lot of our problems. He's a floor spacing big. He can back up both DeAndre and Blake. And it all sounded great. And everybody was like, wow, you know, they got the guy that they needed to take the next level. Then the season started and it was a complete disaster. So it just goes to show that, You know, you really never know how these things are going to play out until you see it, even though, you know, basketball minds as sharp as Doc Rivers uh, thought it was going to go the other way. And it it completely didn't. And it it was just one of them. It was one of the most baffling things I've ever seen.
1: And you think it kind of centered on his confidence and once it kind of broke that. Uh, there was nothing that anybody could do to uh, to get it back, help him get it back.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I saw him, you know, I think early in the season, he was not working with uh, Bob Tate, the, the Clippers shooting coach, uh, who's kind of like, uh, he's almost like a, a, well, he is like a personal tutor for, for Blake Griffin, but he'll also work with other guys as needed. And I saw as the season went on, uh, Spencer was working more and more with him, but Frankly, it didn't. It didn't seem to help, and I got to the point where I was just watching him shoot, and it just seemed like his confidence. I mean, I could just tell when he took a shot. He was. He wasn't even confident that it had a good chance of going in. Um, so it was kind of sad to watch. And you know, obviously his playing time went down. I think he had one game in the playoffs when he scored like 11 points in a loss against Houston. Um, but other than that, uh, pretty much you know a complete disaster, unfortunately.
1: Right. Well, uh, as another aside, working with Bob Fade and not, and not having that work out also based on what we know of how he teaches and watching how Blake Griffin shoots mechanically, uh, I'm not surprised, unfortunately, but uh, we'll see. Maybe Griffin can, uh, will improve as well, but, you know, we, we go all, all over all sorts of mechanical stuff that we see and we know what, what Fade stresses, and so, you know, we'll see. I, I don't have a lot of hope that that would help anybody. Uh, let's talk about Josh Smith, though, because – you know, like you said, uh, as far as Hawes getting his eleven points in the playoffs, you know, people, I, I'm brutal on him as well. He was a bad influence in Detroit. He did, go, he did, though, like basically win games for the Rockets in the playoffs, uh, particularly against the Clippers. Um, are you, are you aware of this weird thing that Doc Rivers likes to do by signing players that seem to do well against his teams?
2: Yeah, you know, I wasn't real clear of a. There's, there's a history of that of guys, a list of guys you can point to.
1: Yeah, I mean, someone sent it over, but you know, certainly like, well, Big Baby was one of his former players, but um, oh my goodness gracious, I had to call it up. There, there was about four or five of these guys that like, like they'll, that'll light him up in a, in a playoff series or in a regular season, you know, a couple games, and then he like trades for him. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm now I'm revealing how bad prepared I am because so I know I don't, I can't picture <laughs> the guys, but. Um, Anyway, I guess what the point was in a more positive way was that, you know, people shouldn't sleep on that. You know, Josh Smith was a hero. I mean, like he, they don't win. They don't come back from that deficit against the Clippers without Josh Smith.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, him, him and Corey Brewer pretty much single-handedly took out the Clippers in that comeback. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of like this move. I mean, he's, Another, you know, the, the the one of the things the Clippers' second unit last year not only was it just brutally shorthanded as far as depth, but I mean they were just terrible defensively. You know, when they they played without DeAndre Jordan on the floor, I mean, I don't I don't have the numbers in front of me, but their you know defensive efficiency must have been the worst in the NBA of of almost any collection of guys playing together. I mean, I love Glenn Davis as much as anybody, but him and Spencer Hall's. Uh, Defensively, was was not a good fit. You got Jamal, who's a below-average defender. Um, You know, and and, and, you know, if you if you didn't have at least two or three starters and mixing and matching with those guys, they were just uh, a huge liability out there. And I think Josh Smith, you know, will change that. He'll be the primary backup to uh, Blake Griffin. He's a, a really good shot blocker. Um, he's somebody who's going to bring some toughness. And, you know, you put him and Lance Stevenson together, who's also a huge plus defender. And now you've really got something. Uh, you got, you know, somebody on the wing and inside who who really can kind of set the tone for the other guys. And I think that potentially could be a real plus for the Clippers um, as they look to retool what was the NBA's worst bench. Uh,
1: the, for, without question, they, they've improved at the very least. On paper, and even probably on the court as well, independent of uh, or even looking, including maybe Lance's possible issues or Josh Smith's possible issues in the locker room, whatever. Without question, yeah, they've definitely improved. By the way, there was, this is was a big stink uh, in DeAndre Jordan's Defensive uh, Player of the Year campaign last year was that, uh, and, and you mentioned it just now, when Jordan was on the court, the Clippers' defensive rating was 103.1. When he was on the bench, it went down. A little bit barely so it, it was interesting that it's a real interesting conundrum because obviously DeAndre Jordan is a defensive force but for whatever reason when he was on the bench they played a little bit better defensively
2: yeah you know it's one of those things that the numbers just boggle the mind I, I don't quite understand that even though I you know I've seen that and read that just like everybody else but you know Doc had some explanations for, for, for you know some of the things that, that happened and, you know, Tom Haberstraw with ESPN did a real detailed thing trying to kind of breaking down why DeAndre was not uh, as valuable, maybe as Doc said he was, you know, I watched him all season. I think the guy is, is incredibly valuable defensively. Um, and, and I really don't can't really put my finger on those numbers because uh, I mean, like I said, just mentioned uh would you rather have blake griffin and deandre jordan on your as your defensive front line or glenn davis and spencer Hawes? i mean it's it's it just right. it's just crazy
1: uh and,
2: and 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 you know let's let's also forget when he's off the court um you know the, some other guys um the, the 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 mixing and matching of guys is different and they're out of there you know what they're trying to do and things like that so Um, you know, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's one of those things where the numbers say something, but you know, what your eyes see, you know, Doc's not really big into analytics and I'm kind of one of those guys in the middle. Um, but you know, if if I had a choice between, you know, DeAndre Jordan on off the court, I would, I would definitely want him out there, uh, anchoring my defense. I'll put it that way.
1: Absolutely. And I, I agree with you. It's hard to imagine. that. That is one of these weird glitches and there's definitely an explanation uh, as to why it's there. I haven't really come up with it either. I watch a lot of the Clippers games, um, but there's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of silly. They, they are better on defense when he is out there for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's just, yeah, it, it, every once in a while, you'll find some strange, you know, numbers there. But, um, Let's talk a little bit about um, actually when you mentioned about Doc Rivers not being into analytics. Like, is that is he like a are we on like Byron Scott level here or just sort of in no 20? no
2: yeah I should clarify that I'm glad you give me a, a chance to clarify that I, they you know I think they have a pretty strong analytics department and they look at all the numbers and you know I've talked to him and players at Linked about this I just don't think that they run their team based on analytics I think that they kind of pick and choose and I think that's the way you know, a smart organization should operate is you have all the information available and you use what you think is relevant and can help you. Um, You know, the Lakers have taken a lot of heat for, for being, you know, back in the mid eighties as far as their analytical approach. Um, But, you know, I I think the Clippers are are sound in that department. I just think that he's not going to overemphasize it like some of the other, you know, money ballish teams like the Rockets and, know 76ers and, and teams like that where it's it's like a focal point of what they do i think it's a, a factor in what they do i just don't think that they make it uh kind of the end all be all which i think is is the right way to do it
1: sure i mean and by the way they were fifth in the league in three point attempts per game which might not be the best way of measuring it but that still means that they're you know they're getting the those high quality uh or they certainly those efficient shots they're looking for Um, you know, it was funny because the Knicks got a lot of criticism as well for, you know, they were drawing the triangle offense and through a lot of the season. And even when they finished the season, they were, you know, 21st in three point attempts per game. So they were closer to average than they were at the bottom. And uh, so I, I always uh, with a, there's a little grain of salt, I take when I hear, even the criticism of like what people, you know, in, infer from, you know, analytics or not what they want to take from that, because, you know, you're, I think it's a lot more dependent on what you have and what your your makeup is. If, if you're not a three point shooting team, then you shouldn't be shooting threes. I think that's probably what Byron Scott was alluding to when he was talking about it.
2: Yeah, and this is a little bit of a a non sequitur here, but as we mentioned, three-point shooting, and I—that's a bell went off in my head. Uh, You know, Lance Stevenson's struggles last year, I think, were were a large function of not having good three-point shooting around them. I think Steve Clifford, the the Bobcats, or I should say Hornets, coach, even came out and said that this summer that you know not having the shooters around Lance Stevenson. Um, kept him from being the player who could turn the corner and get to the basket and make the layups that made him effective with the Pacers. And the Clippers certainly have you know, a ton of shooting that they can surround him with, with uh, you know, Crawford and Reddick and you know, some other guys uh, off the bench uh, that are going to really, I think, make a big difference for Lance Stevenson. And I think that's one of the reasons that he's going to be a much better fit uh, with the Clippers.
1: We'll see. I mean, I have a lot of issues also with his um fundamentals. He's just sort of off balance. his footwork is usually pretty poor. um and the argument tends to be, oh that's what makes him good. He's unpredictable. It's hard to guard. but we'll see uh, you know he he did just come off I think the worst three point shooting um season anyone's ever had with with that, that amount, a minimum amount of attempts um, that's correct. which which also you know is interesting because you know with a guy like kemba who would set him up and get him open, you think that it would do it, but uh, you know, it just sounded like it was a tough season overall uh, for that, for Charlotte anyway. Um, and so I would anticipate, yeah, he's going to shoot better than 17% from three, right? He's, he's going to get up to 30, 35, yeah. something, I'd imagine. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Let's talk a little bit about um, Paul Pierce, because obviously that was another one of the big signings or they that they got in um, to replace, I guess, Matt Barnes and maybe be a better version of that. Um, you know, have you seen him move at all this summer? Is he can he still get off the bench and and move at a speed necessary at the NBA level?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that's one thing where you know this improved Clippers depth is really going to help. The big question is going to be, you know, are they going to do a maintenance plan with him? And I haven't heard one way or the other. Um, you know, are they going to? hit him out in second games of back-to-back, you know, clearly they're going to limit his minutes. I think he's coming off a season where he had about 25 minutes a game. It was career low for him. And yet, you know, we saw what he can do in crunch time in the playoffs with the Wizards. You know, he hit that big shot to win a game and and nearly hit another one to to extend a game that, uh, you know, just was on his fingertips as the clock expired. Uh, but he's he's clearly still a clutch player he still still clearly can play in the nba um it's just going to be a matter of how much they're going to give how much he's going to give them uh per game but i think you know the bigger thing he brings is going to be in the locker room as far as the team chemistry and leadership uh that voice of you know having been there and done that you know they had it a little bit with you know glenn davis and uh who had won and and jj redick to an extent had been to an nba finals but you know, he, here's a guy who, you know, was finals MVP, and, and I think that takes takes it to a whole new level as far as credibility and listening to him. Here's one of the things I'm interested to see. Will his leadership overshadow that of Chris Paul, and could that become a point of contention? Because I think clearly Chris Paul was leader of this team, and now you're adding a uh, former, uh, you know, NBA finals MVP. You know, obviously they're in different spots in their career. Chris Paul is still you know, on the tail end of his prime, and and Paul's, you know, got, you know, maybe a couple of seasons left in him, but it'll be interesting to see if they're able to gel and and get on the same page and and kind of, you know, push and cajole and prod these guys uh, in tandem in a way that works, you know, in sync, as opposed to one guy pushing one guy, you know, one way and the other guy trying to pull him back the other way. Um, you know, I don't have any evidence to say that it can't work, but it'll be interesting to see how they're they both have strong personalities. And, you know, how's that going to mesh uh, with with the locker room of, uh, of other guys who will be clearly looking to both of them to see how they respond and set the tone for these guys?
1: Well, what do you think? You think they're going to be able to make a run? I mean, what is there? Obviously, a championship or bust could very well be what this year is about. Uh, are they going to how far are they going to get?
2: Yeah, you know it's just so crazy. I mean, you could make a case for them winning the NBA championship. You could make a case for them losing in the first round. I mean, it's just nuts. That's just what the NBA Western Conference has, you know, come to with such depth and, and so many good teams. I mean, I look at the top four in the West as being um, clearly, you know, the, the the Spurs with with getting LaMarcus Aldridge and David West. You got the defending champion. Warriors, who are pretty, you know, pretty basically intact from what they had. You've got the Clippers. You've got, um, you know, Oklahoma City, assuming that uh, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook are both healthy. You know, last time that happened, they went to the NBA Finals. So, I, and let's not forget Memphis. You know, they got better. They, they added a couple of guys. Uh, and, you know, they got Matt Barnes. I know that, that some people might laugh that I even mentioned that, but he's, he's, he's a nice little compliment to the kind of grit and grind style that they love um so they're going to be right in the mix as well and 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 you know we saw last year the Clippers played the Spurs in the first round it was probably the best series in the whole playoffs and I think you know they were pretty much separated by like a game in the standings and that was like the three six matchup and it was just crazy um to think that they could meet in the first round and yet it happened so You know, I I think that something special could be in store for the Clippers. I I think, you know, Western Conference Finals is is realistic. Um, But like I said, it's going to come down to matchups, and they're going to have to get a good draw and get get some luck uh, along the way and get some of these issues that we've talked about to to go in their favor and not, you know, kind of implode and go the other way, which is always a possibility. But, you know, they do have some strong leadership and Doc and – and Paul Pierce and Chris Paul. So I think those are all things uh, working in their favor.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that some things have to kind of break right for them to do it, but that is the case for everybody. Um, It doesn't seem that far out of the realm, but you're describing a bloodbath in the West. You didn't even mention New Orleans. And I think if anyone wants to sleep on them with with Gentry as their coach and they did some nice things, uh, you know, that's going to be a team that no one is going to play. And they match up – very well with the Clippers, um, and also mm-hmm. Utah. I think Utah is one of those other teams because they'll be able to shut you down no matter what you, they do on offense, and they can make it into one of those 92-91 you know, games, and who knows what happens when that, you, know, you get in those grinds uh, with a defensive team. So um, I would not want to be in the West if I were anybody these days.
2: Yeah, it's going to be – you know, you, it's funny. I, I keep thinking every year, you know, how can it get any better? And it just seems to happen every year. Um, you know, obviously Portland took a step back, and, and, and maybe, you know, Dallas did definitely did with DeAndre not coming. But, uh, you know, there's always going to be teams that step up and fill that void. Um, and you mentioned two of them with, with, you know, New Orleans who already made the playoffs, and now they're looking to be, you know, a top-tier West team and who and say that can't happen with somebody as dynamic and, and, and just crazy good as Anthony Davis uh, and, you know, new, new coach and Alvin Gentry, who's very underrated and one of the best offensive minds uh, in the NBA. So yeah, it's, it's just going to be, uh, I hate to, you know, start using cliches and kind of like an NBA player, but it's like, you know, every night it's just going to be a battle and, and it'll, it, but fortunately, you know, we get to watch it and, and it should be super entertaining.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, our battle is coming to an end, and it was super entertaining as well, so, and, and informative. So, Ben, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and giving us uh, some really great insight. Uh, I guess it's clear that you're going to save these Balmer stories for your book. Is that right?
2: <laughs> well, it'll be interesting to see if it's a, if it's a championship book or, or, or another kind of book, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's still to be determined, and uh, whatever happens, it's going to be fun to watch.
1: Absolutely. Well, tell us where we can find you on Twitter for all of the latest uh, Clippers news.
2: Yes, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it's uh, at L-A-T, as in Los Angeles Times, B-Bolch. So it's uh, Ben Bolch at L-A-T B-Bolch.
1: Nice. Well, uh, guys, check him all out, follow him, and uh, keep up with all the Clippers happenings. And uh, Ben, thanks for coming on. We'll have to have you on again uh, soon.
2: Sounds good. It'll be uh, interesting to see. Maybe we can do it uh, early in the season, see if these moves are working out.
1: Absolutely. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Ben? Absolutely.
0: When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense, like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love a sweater that I got you. If you didn't. makes it easy. Just go to geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama.
2: I even had a gift receipt